Hello, I'm Doug Hadaway. You're listening to Achieve Great Things, where we talk about the power of strategy, science, and storytelling to help you achieve ambitious goals for people and the planet. When we're bombarded every day by stories about the world's most pressing problems, we can feel overwhelmed. Cognitive science says that overwhelming people with the complexity of problems can demotivate them from seeking solutions. On this episode of Achieve Great Things, we talk with Christine Heenan, an expert in social impact communications, who says that solutions-driven communication might offer an antidote. When she led global communications at the Rockefeller Foundation, Christine and her team created Solvable, a multimedia platform aimed at driving awareness of problems that are solvable within the next generation. We talked about the power of solutions-oriented storytelling to inspire people to tackle complex problems and to restore hope and optimism in a world that needs them. Uh, Let's start with your story. How did you get started in the field of communications for social impact? So I was a journalism major in college and knew I was drawn to communications. I was drawn to storytelling. Part of that's a big Irish family where that's sort of a revered skill (laughs) and an oft-demonstrated family attribute. And I liked writing. I was a journaler from being a little kid and was drawn to the sort of fast pace of journalism. I ended up in the Clinton administration in a policy role that gravitated to a speech writing and communications role. Mm. And what I found was, I worked on healthcare reform in 1993 and 94, and for a period of time there was a gap between people who deeply understood healthcare policy and what would make a difference to those on Medicaid, how to best reach rural providers, um, all the various aspects of a comprehensive approach to healthcare reform, but were used to talking to each other and didn't know much about how to communicate it. And then there were those who were very adept at taking the public opinion research on how to talk about healthcare and putting the right words around that, but who couldn't go one level deeper on the policy and therefore could um, run out of answers for those understandably wanting to understand how healthcare might change under a new law. And so I, um, first, that was an unsuccessful effort, as you may remember, in 1994 to reform healthcare, although I'd like to think it laid the groundwork for what President Obama and others were able to accomplish. But it really taught me about the importance of what I call dual citizenship in both the policy and social impact and communications world, that you really can't afford, if you want to be successful, to not tie communications to a deep understanding of what the policy imperatives to achieving your goals are, and as a policy person, to really being attentive, not necessarily yourself, but to bringing experts in, will help you understand how people think about these issues and how to best communicate them. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of, I would say, my time at the White House was really formative for me in thinking about and working on the impact between policy, social impact, and communications. And that experience in the early 90s on healthcare may have made some contributions, but didn't reach the goal line. What is an example of communications achieving social impact that inspires you? I think um, marriage equality is so often pointed to as an example of a really measurable swing just because Mm -hmm. marriage equality was on the ballot in so many states and resoundingly defeated. In fact, it was a political strategy to bring people out to vote for conservatives who were opposed to a change that didn't feel right to so many Americans not that long ago and who in a very short period of time, based, I think, largely on a very smart communications campaign, came to feel differently about the issue. 
And um, that is one, I, in my time in this field, so many people point to because you can sort of describe moment A and what the world looked like. And there was a measure of moment A in the form of these ballot initiatives and then moment B and public opinion today and also law change today. And mm-hmm. you know, I think others include seatbelt safety, um, the reduction in the use of tobacco, although I think we took our eye off the ball there and um, all the e-cigarettes and vaping and all the yeah. issues that we're dealing with now are um, the sort of way those were marketed was very much the way cigarettes were marketed in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. But we, for a period of time there, that there were very smart social impact communicators who changed public behavior around smoking and changed public policy around smoking. And the marriage equality sort of victory and beyond a legal victory, sort of a change in norms, has been a source of sort of optimism for people, which is mm-hmm. a topic we'll segue to here, optimism, which sometimes gets a bad rap uh, from people who think it means you're looking at a rather dysfunctional world through rose-colored glasses. How do you think of optimism? So my favorite optimism quote is from Helen Keller. And Helen Keller says that optimism is the faith that leads to achievement. And the end of that quote is, nothing can be done without hope and confidence. Mm. And I, you know, I guess there are probably some things that can be done without hope and confidence, but I love the spirit of that quote and particularly the idea of faith that leads to achievement. I think starting with the idea that something is solvable, that it can be tackled, and giving people a clear understanding of what they can do or what their role is, is going to be very important to communications, successful communications and campaigns going forward, in part because I think um, we are bombarded with negative messages. We are bombarded with bad news. Um, There is such toxicity on social media channels that the idea of I wanna um, sit down to something to eat but not get up feeling sick and awful. And how do I think about that? And to me, you know, to extend the analogy, solutions-oriented optimistic communications is just healthier food. You just feel better. And understanding, okay, I'm I'm not helpless. This thing is not um, unsolvable or unaddressable. And now I'm more open to hearing what I might do, what others might do, and how we might make progress. Yeah, I know. A lot of communications in the social impact world is primarily about highlighting problems. Mm -hmm. And you're saying let's, or at least an important part of the picture Mm -hmm. is uh, solution-oriented communication. Um, How does solution-driven communication drive progress? What does that look like? So I'll give you an example from the um, campaign called Solvable that we launched at the Rockefeller Foundation. one of the first guests on the podcast called Solvable with Malcolm Gladwell, who's the host of that podcast, one of the hosts, was with Roseanne Haggerty from Community Solutions talking about homelessness. Mm-hmm. And she described, first of all, she had a very handy label, which is Housing First. And she described a public policy system that has prevailed in most municipalities, which says, first, let's get this person a job. First, let's deal with their addiction issues. Let's understand the mental health problems. And then when we've addressed all of these things, let's get them permanent housing or at least transitional housing. And what she points out, and of course the minute you hear it, it makes sense, is absent the stability of housing, what are the likely successes of any of those other things? So going from housing last to housing first. 
So in that short span, she explains a, a problem that in ways that people can understand and explains a policy solution easily graspable in two words. And what was fun to watch that podcast travel is to see mayors of cities like Louisville and elsewhere saying, this is something we need to take up with the city council or this approach we need to consider here. So sharing ideas that are grounded in data and fact, that are easily graspable, and that point to what, in this case, lawmakers need to do and how they need to organize to move a solution. Another one that I think is such a great example. There's no not talking about the problem in context, sure. of right. course, right? If yeah. homelessness was not a big issue, why should I care about how to solve homelessness? But Jose Andres, who is a, in addition to all of his work with World Central Kitchen, is a major proponent for clean cook stoves around the world because so many women die of smoke inhalation and so many girls have to spend their days collecting firewood for their family hearth that they don't go to school. He does such a great job of explaining how widespread that problem is, but then quickly pivots to here's how solvable it is. Here's how, what a clean coat stove looks like. Here's how much it costs. Here's what it saves. Here's what it does in terms of health, in terms of educational outcomes. You, you, know, you end up thinking, okay, affordable solution. I can see how it can be implemented. Mm -hmm. um, Raj Punjabi at Last Mile Health talks about um, we can't bring comprehensive health care to everywhere in the world, but what about this small number of health care interventions? There's no reason we can't be able to do these small number of things pretty much everywhere by training local community health workers. By the end of listening to him, you think, okay, that sounds totally doable. Mm -hmm. So simplifying, focusing, even if it's a big complex problem like homelessness, was that in that case, housing first is literally branding the solution or the approach. It's not trying to explain the whole thing, but the big idea of start with housing. And, and I think the opposite of that is communications about problems that make them sound so intractable, right. so multidimensional. A former colleague of mine um, from the White House who went on to work with uh, President Obama, Gene Sperling, yep. once referred to this as the mow my lawn problem, that you just hear about this issue and you think, I don't even know where to begin. That just sounds so awful and so terrible and so um, like it's going to get worse and not better. I'm just going to go mow my lawn. I'm just going right. to take care of my own little plot, literally and figuratively, because I don't even know how to engage in something. I think, frankly, that climate change communications has suffered from some yep. from that phenomenon for understandable reasons. It, um, sea level rise is real. The rising temperature of the earth is really problematic. But when it's described in ways that just sound catastrophic and an inexorable march toward a worsening set of conditions without understanding what policy change, scientific advancements, individual behavior change can do to address that, it's just maps that show Manhattan underwater and you just want to hide under the bed. And that doesn't bring us closer to solutions. Right. Um, you mentioned Solvable, a program at that you started at the Rockefeller Foundation. Tell us about that. So um, the current CEO of the Rockefeller Foundation, Raj Shah, could have easily authored that Helen Keller quote. He's just personally very optimistic, and that comes from his own work in global development. But also, um, he's a scientist by training. He's a physician mm -hmm. and scientist and economist. And so he has seen in his various roles uh, solutions that science and data can, can bear. And just 
travels through the world with an optimistic outlook. So it seemed a great project to launch under his leadership at Rockefeller. And the idea was to have global experts talk about, um, tied to the SDGs, about um, individual phenomena that were solvable in their lifetime, that was the time horizon, mm. and to tie those to the 17 SDGs. So the guests on the program, there's a podcast, uh, a series of 60 mini films, and also a documentary film, all meant to highlight a solvable phenomenon in three different formats. So the documentary is longer, you, in, you get to meet three individuals who, um, whose own life and prospects are held back by a solvable phenomenon, whether it's energy access or uh, farming technology or uh, unsafe maternal births, and how interventions have changed the course of their lives or trajectory. And you know, it's, it's a great experiment with different formats for communication, because in a longer form, you can get to meet someone, yep. get to know them. And I think, you know, I think documentary film for social impact is uh, a trend that's really interesting and worth paying attention to. Uh, and in the mini films, they're more bite-sized. And what I find interesting, another very interesting trend in communications, very much tied to the rise of our mobile phones being our most constant companion and source of information is a uh, rise in appetite for short content. Sure. Two minute videos, three minute videos, short podcasts, you're waiting in line, you're uh, you know, waiting for the next soccer game to, where your child's gonna play to right. begin, you're sitting in traffic and it's on your car. And so um, tapping into that ability to watch short form, listen while you're doing other things, or to, to give um, the time and attention to a documentary film were all formats that we experimented with at Solvable. Mm -hmm. I remember seeing the, uh, I think, the first screening of the documentary. The premiere, yeah. It that really was, was, it really was inspiring, so refreshing to see specific <laughs> problems get solved. And that was a takeaway, and you're talking about bite-sized examples too, of, um, yeah, showing people solving problems inspires the next person to go solve the problem versus, um, demotivating everybody, which we know from motivational psychology mm -hmm. is one of the challenges here. If you present a challenge in such a way that people can't see the solution, it's just depressing. But if you show the way forward, it's they get excited about it, and that's, that's inspiration. Very interesting. You mentioned the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. What do you see as the main communication challenge there? And remind people who might not sure. speak SDG lingo, what's this is all about? So um, in 2015, as a follow-on to what were called the Millennial Development Goals, the MDGs, the UN adopted a set of 17 uh, aspirational goals for the planet and its inhabitants called the Sustainable Development Goals. Um, they are, you know, a positive, affirmative, aspirational vision of what might be accomplished by 2030 around the world. They range from things like eradication of poverty to um, improvement of health to life underwater to uh, attention to food and health and, and nutrition and diet. And um, they, you know, there's a lot of discussion about uh, is 17 too many? Is does SDGs sound like, you know, something that, that one gets medication to treat <laughs> as opposed to, uh, you know, should they be called the global goals? 
Um, I, you know, I hope that that debate gets resolved soon in favor of embracing the name I do see spreading around the world, the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, and that we don't compete with ourselves by calling them alternative things. I was really struck. I, I gave a speech in Singapore earlier this year and met with a number of philanthropies in Asia as well as uh, a large bank and the just fluency around the SDGs. I, I think the U.S. Um, may be farther behind in adoption, but both of yeah. my children, for example, learned about the SDGs mm. in school. Um, so I think we probably have a younger generation that knows more about them. And I think um, policymakers or others who aren't themselves that familiar are quick to assume others aren't that familiar either. Um, I thought I would, as an experiment for this podcast, ask 10 people on the corner of 43rd and 2nd Avenue, excuse me, one question, have you heard of the SDGs? And I am, fair enough, we are in the shadow of the UN, yep. but seven out of 10 were yes. <laughs> and one looked at me like, of course, like he was offended by the question. Like I'd said, have you ever heard of Fifth Avenue? Have you ever heard of New York City? That's like, funny. you know, what are you asking me? Of course I've heard of the SDGs. So, huh. you know, I, um, I, that was higher than I thought. It would be. I thought to I'd be, be able to make fair, a point of right. saying, yeah, we are pretty close to the U. I, I didn't ask anybody who had an obvious badge walking by. You know, like, I did <laughs> not right. try to stack the deck. But I thought my point would be the opposite. Nobody, yeah. not enough people know what they are. Uh, maybe I should go to Times Square after this and do the right. say, re replicate the experiment and see if it's lower. I assume it would be. But, I, you know, um, 17 is a lot of things to keep in your head. Um, but that's not the only goal, right? The goal is what are the distinct and soluble different things we are trying to accomplish that, that countries can reasonably set their own targets um, and expectations toward meeting and that sub-communities, whether it's the healthcare sector or the food and nutrition sector or those who worry about the health of oceans can create as tent poles to rally under. And in that way, I think the SDGs um, are getting more attention. I think they deserve even more attention the goal, as I, I mentioned at the outset, is 2030 yep. for delivery of those goals. We have moved backward in the case of some mm -hmm. of these goals, and we are no closer in the case of others um, to when they were set in 2015. I guess that's in part the point of aspirational goals, but it's nice to see progress, right. and progress eludes us in some cases. That said, there's a lot of focus that next year, 2020, will be the so-called decade of delivery, that between 2020 and 2030, there'll be a strong push nation by nation, but also with individuals and civil society toward those goals. And uh, you know, I'm optimistic that 2020 will, will feel different in terms of SDG advocacy around the world and that SDGs will, will come to be understood by a broader population of people. It seems like that would be the time for solutions-oriented mm -hmm. communication, right? Showing how to get across the finish line. And exactly right. And also, if, if I don't know what the finish line looks like, um, how will I know whether we're making progress? And I take something like one thing I think the climate movement has really coalesced around that's understood is the idea of two degrees mm. and the risk to the planet of a two-degree increase in temperature and the need to keep it at 1.5. People understand, okay, we need 1.5, not 2. That's right. what the goal line looks like. Um, I care passionately about SDG 5, which is gender equality. Um, gender equality, what's the goal? How do we define that? Is that more women in representational positions in government? Is that more women in the suite of companies? Is it equal pay? 
Is it, you know, what are the various components of that? How will I know we've achieved it? That's a real challenge for that community to help mm -hmm. define so people know that we're getting there. Are there examples of communications around the SDGs that stand out to you as particularly effective or going in the right direction? Um, I think Project Everyone does a very good job of communicating about the SDGs. I think Goalkeepers, which is a, a Gates Foundation-led initiative about uh, driving toward the goals that, uh, that we're trying to achieve, are, are both good examples. Um, Richard Curtis, who uh, the British filmmaker, director, who founded uh, Red Nose Day, has a great line, which is, in order to make something happen, you have to make something. So the role of film, of yep. short pieces, of, of billboards, of one of the things that Project Everyone is putting in place this year are these big data clocks that will share data about the SDGs and how close or how far we are to achieving them. And you know, I think about um, at a time when the deficit was much more of a preoccupation yep. among Americans, there was that debt clock yep. in New York City that sort of ticked across and I, I um, heard with interest as the Brexit issue continues to roil the UK that they stopped the Brexit clock. Hmm. And there was a countdown yeah, clock countdown. to days yeah. to where Brexit, and now it's that it's unclear about the timeline of Brexit, the clock that people were sort of paying attention to. And so I think people do pay attention yeah. to things like that, and it allows you to even, what is that clock and what does it mean to kind of look it up and better mm -hmm. understand it. So those are, uh, I would point to those efforts as really good um, ways of making the SDGs accessible and interesting and finding a way to involve people personally. Mm -hmm. Looking to the future in general, um, what's one trend or innovation in communication that you see as holding promise for helping the world solve tough problems? Um, I do think short form content, um, you know, two minutes of an interview or, or podcast like this one, two minute short micro films. I think um, platforms like TikTok and others that are uh, really coming on strong demonstrate interest in something that can be absorbed in a short period of time, mm -hmm. but can absolutely send a message, but that also has room for creativity of expression. I think one trend that really excites me is the increasing union between the creative class and those interested in and passionate about issues and social change. And I think that um, union will only continue and using the kind of people who bring creativity and screenwriting to the programs that most grip us on television or on Netflix to how do we communicate about climate or about gender equality is really exciting and will bear really interesting fruit uh, increasingly in years ahead. Great. Thanks so much for sharing your wisdom with us. You're a real leader in social impact communications. Thanks. And um, more to come, I'm sure. Thanks.